We light one Advent candle remembering Jesus, who is coming again. He will come to gather his people from everywhere, both the living and the dead. We remember Jesus, who will come at the end of time. None of us know what day that will be. We hear his call to watch. We light one Advent candle as a sign of our watchfulness and waiting. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Through your word and spirit, may our souls be blessed. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is most certainly an unusual year as we gather to celebrate Advent. And since it's such an unusual year and the COVID virus has disrupted many of our traditions, it seems the better part of wisdom to focus on one of the oldest Advent traditions in our Christian church. Since roughly 500 A.D., Christians have had the Advent wreath and candles that they light as they look forward to the time when Christ, true God, would become true man and be born. And while today we have changed the meaning of those candles to joy, hope, peace, and love, the original meaning of those candles began with prophecy. And so the first candle in the Advent wreath is the prophecy candle. And so, the text that we will use as we work our way through the Advent wreath this year, and today focus on the first candle, the prophecy candle, is Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. All this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Matthew records our text after Joseph had found that Mary was pregnant, and he knew he wasn't the biological father and planned to divorce her quietly, but God intervened. Matthew summarizes everything leading up to the birth of Jesus with those words, telling us all this took place in complete fulfillment of what had been prophesied. The prophecy candle reminds us of the whole entire point of Scripture. All the Old Testament, even some of the strange books that seem out of place and out of context, makes complete sense when we understand that the Old Testament, all of it, is about the prophecy of the coming Savior, that God would take on human flesh. Now, in Scripture, prophecy is telling God's will to His people. That may be pointing out to them what his will was in the past. It may be pointing out to them what his will is in the present. And it may be pointing out to the people what his will is in the future, depending on things, for example, to warn them of their sinful actions, what his will would be if they sinned or what his will would be if they repented. But as we look at the prophecy candle, we are focusing on God progressively telling more and more about the coming Savior, each detail becoming more focused so that when Christ is born, everybody could know that he fit the bill perfectly. 
He was the prophesied Savior. The first prophecy of the coming Savior happened right after the fall. As God comes down to the Garden of Eden to talk to Adam and Eve, and we see their sinful nature as Adam passes the buck on to Eve, and Eve blames the serpent who did deceive them, ultimately, God tells them in Genesis 3 verse 15, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. Hostility means Adam and Eve had thought that the devil, disguising himself as a talking snake, was their friend, that he was the good guy. And when they listened to him, they fell into sin. It would actually take God putting the Holy Spirit in their hearts for them to suddenly understand that the devil was their enemy. God would give them faith. And with the faith they had, they would no longer see God as their enemy, holding back a special blessing. They would understand the devil was their enemy. But faith has to have an object, something in which it is clinging to and believing in. And that something was that there would ultimately be a descendant from the woman who would destroy the devil's work. Now, the Hebrew word that we translate as seed is the word for what the male provides in a baby. And notice how he says between her seed and your seed? Women do not have that part. It would be thousands of years later when the prophet Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would prophesy in Isaiah chapter 7 with complete clarity that a virgin, that's the seed of a woman, would give birth to the Savior. This is what our sermon text is quoting today. But the very first prophecy of the coming Savior makes it clear that what Adam and Eve had done, there would be a Savior who would undo. He would crush the work of the devil. And God gave Adam and Eve faith to trust in that promise in the coming Savior. God's promise would then remain quiet for many, many years as the people gathered to worship him. This was what they had to go by. Now, after the flood, Noah falls into sin. He's able to produce wine from the first harvest of grapes, and when he gets drunk, Ham takes advantage of it and thinks it's funny to see the folly of his father. In the long run, Noah says somewhat of an obscure prophecy in which he points out that something's unique about Shem. We recognize that the coming Savior will be a descendant of Shem, and then again, things become quiet for some time. God's promise continued when he made a covenant with Abram, having called Abram out of idolatry and names him Abraham. God promised to build Abraham's descendants into a nation through whom the Savior would be born. That promise begins in Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who dishonors you. All of the families of the earth will be blessed in you. And that's where we have the next prophecy of the coming Savior. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. This is because Jesus will be a descendant of Abraham. Now, Abraham was pretty old when he was called to enter into the land God promised to give to his descendants. 
Him and his wife both were already beyond childbearing years, and it was many more years before Isaac was eventually born to Abraham and Sarah. When Abraham struggled to see how God could keep his promise, God reaffirmed his covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 through 6. The Lord then brought him outside and said, Now look towards the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. He said to Abram, This is what your descendants will be like. Abram believed in the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. They're constantly at war with each other, and Jacob deceives his father to get the blessing that God had already said was meant to be for Jacob, but Isaac wanted to give to Esau, who could care less about the coming Savior. However, when Jacob flees for his life from his brother and he falls asleep along the way, God comes to him and promises him in Genesis 29 verse 14, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. In you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Once again, God clarifies more about the Savior, that he will come as a descendant of Jacob. Jacob has twelve sons, and near the end of his life, when he gives a blessing to each one of his sons, the Holy Spirit inspires him to prophesy in his blessing to Judah. We're going to start that at Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, although it actually begins at verse 8. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the one whom it belongs comes. He will receive the obedience of the peoples. Now we see something else about the coming Savior. He will be a king. We have to fast forward many years to see this prophecy begin to be fulfilled in the foreshadow of David, who becomes the second king over the nation of Israel, replacing a king who was a descendant of Benjamin, that would be King Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12-14, through 14, we see God promise David, When your days are complete and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your seed, who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, David's son Solomon certainly built the temple, but his kingdom was not established forever. That was just a foreshadow. The reality is fulfilled in Christ. Christ, who builds the temple, which is the invisible church, made up of all believers. For everyone who trusts in Christ for salvation is a brick on the foundation stone of Christ, and Christ's bride, the invisible church, lasts forever. She will never die. So you, as First Peter points out, are a priest that makes the temple and serves the temple of the Lord. Now, we actually fast forward ahead after the time of King David. We hear Isaiah prophesying in chapter 7, the quote that is our sermon text today, so we know very clearly the Savior will be born of a virgin, no biological father. 
He is true God who became true man. He got his human nature from the zygote, the egg, of a particular descendant of David. And if we follow the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, it appears that Matthew, according to Jewish reckoning, who figured if you were adopted, the father who adopted you, his lineage is the one that counts. But the Gentiles, and that seems to be what's going on in Luke, would think whoever his biological parent is, that's his true genealogy. And so in Luke we can trace Mary's genealogy. Both come to David, but through different sons. God kept his promise, and on Christmas Day we celebrate the birth of our Savior who was born to David's descendants, just as God promised. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the town of Nazareth into Judea to the town of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and family line of David. He went to be registered with Mary his wife, who was pledged to him in marriage and was expecting a child. And so it was that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And so, in our text today, we're told that we will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, literally translated from the Hebrew, means God is with us. A virgin giving birth makes it clear that the Savior would be true man. However, what it means that God is with us was already explained many years before Isaiah gave his prophecy. It was explained in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, which tell us, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. It is clear that true God would become a man in order to save us. But how would he do that? Jeremiah, living around 500 B.C., prophesied in chapter 23, verse 6, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. This is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Since we are unrighteous and sin daily, the Lord was born and lived his life in perfect righteousness so that he could give us his righteousness. The problem is, our sin must be removed before we can be credited with righteousness. And so Isaiah, in chapter 53, verse 5, prophesied, But it was because of our rebellion that he was pierced. He was crushed for the guilt our sins deserved. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus bore the punishment for us. Isaiah told us he would be pierced. We know that this happened on the cross. The ultimate punishment for sin is to be abandoned by God. Psalm 22 gives us a very graphic description of Christ on the cross, especially that he would suffer the ultimate punishment for our sins. King David prophesied in Psalm 22 verse 1 what Jesus would say and feel on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we see that the Lord was born to live perfectly for us and die for us. But if that were all the story, we would be just as sad as the disciples when Jesus died. However, Scripture prophesied that he would come to life so that we too may live. Once again, Jesus' earthly ancestor, King David, prophesied in Psalm 16, verses 9-11, through Even my flesh will dwell securely, because you will not abandon my life to the grave. You will not let your favored one see decay. You have made known to me the path of life fullness of joy in your presence, pleasure at your right hand forever.
We often find ourselves ignorant of all the comfort of Scripture, but as we look at the prophecy candle, that's exactly what we're being reminded of. God had prophesied that he would take on human flesh and save us. All the Old Testament is gradually revealing and unfolding for us how he preserved the line of the Savior until the time when the Savior would come. The New Testament makes it clear only one person ever born could be our righteousness. Only one person fits the bill perfectly because he's not just a man. He is true man and true God. The prophecy candle reminds us of the whole entire point of Scripture. As John chapter 20 verse 31 tells us, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so as we've seen today in the prophecy candle, we see the prophecies unfolding that the Savior, true God, would become true man, a descendant of David. And then we see in those scriptures that this descendant of David is the king who is our righteousness, who is our substitute, who has done 100% of the work to save us. And when you and I hear the prophecy, the Holy Spirit enters our heart to create faith and sustain faith so that we know that those things are written, so that you and I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you and I both have life in his name. Amen. And now the brilliant light of Christ will continue to shine in our sin-enshrouded hearts, and his light will continue to guide our feet into the path of peace. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Lord, you spoke through the prophets of old to comfort and assure us that you would send your Son to redeem us. Work in our hearts to give us confidence in your word and certainty of our salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.